Our Bible study today is entitled, The Biblical Case for Segregation, Old Testament Foundations. At some point, I hope to have a follow-up lesson in which we'll take into account New Testament issues and circumstances that need to be examined from the New Testament. Our study today will primarily be, though, the foundations of Scripture regarding segregation. Now, all of you who are a part of this congregation know that ethnic and racial segregation is a primary feature of the worldview of the Church of Israel here in Shell City, Missouri. It is one of the things that makes us different and unique, and it does bring upon us a certain amount of scorn and ridicule from time to time. But I believe God has guided us and blessed us in this, and you and I do share an important value that we need to be prepared to defend, and we need to be prepared to endure a little bit of persecution from time to time with respect to this. And there are times in which you and I may feel like we are the weird ones, and certainly much of the world today would like us to feel that way. They want you to feel like you're very much out of step and are running down a pathway that is wrong, strange, bizarre, weird, perhaps even evil and iniquitous and sinful, they might argue. But you might be reminded that for millennia, not just centuries, but millennia, people of the world survived and prospered because they believed the way you and I do now on this topic. And it is in recent decades that the pendulum has swung, and as much of the travail and trouble and discord of our nation and the world stems from Western culture abandoning this basic precept. And we are clinging to that which for generations upon generations believed was natural, normal, and right. And of course, we need to be able to defend it, though, from the Bible. So our purpose today is to offer a little bit of a defense in this area, as well as to explore a couple of areas that need a little bit of uh, dissection from Scripture. So let's just run quick through a few basic ideas. Now, I'm going to go through parts of this study this morning rather rapidly. There are far more Bible passages on the outline that you've received than what I can cover today. I don't have time to read them all. We don't have time to take each one of them apart and to dissect each of these passages. But they're on uh, the worksheet there so that you can look at it yourself in your own time as God would put upon your heart to do. So the first portion of our study now, as we look into it, I'd like to start with just a few basic ideas. And the, the first basic premise is this. The Old Testament establishes the precept that the races should not intermarry. Well, that's not news to us here in this congregation here this morning. And we find that beginning very, at the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. It reads, God created great whales, the living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And verse 25 and God made the beast of the cattle after his kind, cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Now we can elaborate on that in Genesis chapter number 1, but it establishes the general 
principle, creation week, the seven-day creation week establishes the general principle of kind after kind. Now, of course, this is also followed up with a number of passages that we could read regarding Mosaic statutory law, which also establishes this rule in various places. And the Mosaic law was meant for Israel as a nation. This was the law of Israel as a nation. And what constituted the national framework of this people Israel was their law. And there are a series of verses here we could look at, but I'll just highlight one or two. For example, in Exodus chapter 33, shortly after the receiving of the Ten Commandments, chronologically in time, only a very short time after that, we find in Genesis 33 verse, excuse me, Exodus 33 verse 16, tells us that... <clears throat> that God separated, God literally separated the people of Israel from the other people of the earth. It says, For wherein shall it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Now, if you care to, you can read in Leviticus chapter 20. You could read in Deuteronomy chapter number 7 which explicitly tells them, explicitly, do not give your sons unto their daughters, do not take their daughters unto your sons, explicitly tells us that the children of Israel were not to interbreed, they were not to intermarry, they were not to mingle, they were not to form these connections in the land of Canaan with the people that lived there already. So we can look at all those passages, and these are just a few that we could cite. Then there are, of course, there are other Old Testament passages that support this general precept. And I've given you a few examples from Psalm 144 and Jeremiah and Hosea. But there are others that generally support the basic baseline concept that Israel was to be a segregated people, severed from the rest of the world, severed from the rest of the nations, severed from the rest of the races and the other ethnicities around them, they were meant to keep their separate, distinct identity in terms of law, in terms of worship, and in terms of marriage and their relationships among the other folks round about the world and in the region where they lived. They were supposed to be separate. And this is found in a number of places. Now, I'm not reading them because I want to be able to spend more time in our discussion today in a couple of other areas that need a little exploration and need a little bit more attention. Now, I will call your attention to Numbers chapter 25. Now, we won't read all of Numbers 25, but I would like to ask you to turn there and just notice a couple of verses out of this story. Numbers 25, you might recall, this is dealing when the children of Israel were wandering in their various wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years, we discover that at one point, another people, another ethnic group, another group around them, the Moabites, began to have some interaction with the children of Israel. And if we start in verse number 1, it says, The children abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Now, if you read through this story, you discover that this, 
this whoredom with the daughters of Moab constituted two elements. And the point I want to draw from this particular passage is this. Idolatry and race mixing often walk together. They go together. This passage highlights that. It highlights the idea that the Moabites were having an influence upon the Israelites in two very negative ways. One, they were causing them to abandon their worship of Jehovah for Baal Peor, a false deity, but they were also intermingling in terms of their uh, relationships. And this particular story tells us of a very high-profile fornication circumstance in which a young man who was prominent in Israel brought into the the tabernacle area a, a young lady who is a Moabite and a young man named Phinehas, who was the son of Eleazar, who is the son of Aaron, the high priest. So he was a special person in in some respects. That is, Aaron, the high priest, had jurisdiction over the tabernacle, didn't he? The tabernacle in the wilderness. That was his realm of responsibility. And Eleazar, his eldest son, who became the next high priest, was involved in protecting the tabernacle. And young Phinehas, who is Eleazar's son, grandson of Aaron, who is now getting very old, by the way. He was probably, I don't know, 80, 90, very old gentleman. Phineas, who had jurisdiction and worked in the tabernacle precinct, Phineas dealt with this in a very dramatic way. He rushed in there, took a spear, and ran it through the both of them, killing the Israelite man and the Moabite lady, running them right through their middle. Stabbing them. A, 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 a violent solution to an extraordinary sin. Well, Phineas, this was happening in a very special place. This was in the tabernacle. So it was kind of a unique situation. Kind of a special situation. Well, we see that Phineas, rather than being scolded by our Father in heaven, Phineas, God was pleased with his zeal. All right, now I'm not here to say that every one of us should grab a spear and rush out and take things into our own hand when you see things you don't care to see and you think that God might not be pleased with because it's a special time and a special place and he was a, had a man who had a special task to perform in the tabernacle precinct. But the main point I want to draw from this very dramatic story is this. And you might have remembered this story, right? Many of you remember that, right? It was a case of idolatry and race mixing walking hand in hand. And that's worthy of remembering as we go through our study this morning. Because if you look at our nation today, and you look at the Western world as a whole, if you enjoy history and like to read and get a scope of Western history of the last 500 years, that is the pattern that you see. You see idolatry and race mixing going hand in hand time and time again. And the culture... And the people collapse, the religious culture and the ethnic identity, the racial identity, collapse together at the same time. So it's worth remembering. All right, now, what I'd like to spend some time on this morning is the second part of our outline. Now, there are three famous failures that we're going to highlight today 
when different kinds or races interbred in history, in the history of Scripture. We're going to look at three examples. And the first example is the one I'd like to spend a little time on. So a couple of weeks ago, we did a little bit of a study on angels, angel kind. We studied uh, uh, not only holy angels, but we also studied fallen angels. We studied a little bit about Satan and the devil. We got our, wrapped our minds around a few of the basic precepts in this area of study called angelology. This little subsection of our study this morning is going to take us into an, an area of this study of angels and fallen angels that is, I think, interesting, but it also has some important features that are worthy of us considering in this general area of racial mixture and the mixture of the different kinds that God originally established in Genesis chapter number one. Now, the law of kind after kind is a program that is instinctively in place in every one of his creatures. Yet, you and I enjoy something that most living creatures do not enjoy. We en enjoy an intellect, the ability to think, the ability to choose, and the ability to override natural instincts, which we often do. Lower order creatures do not do that. The sheep that graze in your pasture function 99% by instinct and hardly at all by thinking and then choosing. But you and I, like angels, although we have an instinct, we override that instinct constantly because we think and then we choose. I have an instinct to eat six donuts, but I think and I choose to eat only one. We do this all the time. And that is what makes us a higher order. Now, in some cases, because in a fallen world, we might think wrongly and thus choose wrongly. And that's the case here that we're going to look at regarding angel kind and the human kind that are involved, in which there is an ability to rise above the general rule of kind after kind that lower creatures really can't hardly violate. But we can, and angels can. Now, what we're going to look at is how fallen angels set a wicked example that others followed. Now, last week, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago, I read for you a couple of passages in dealing with the idea that there were angels that indeed sinned. One of them, I'd like to read into the record again this morning, it's taken from Jude. Now, in the book of Jude, beginning of verse 6, it describes this. It says, The angels kept not their first estate. That means their first position, their first condition, their first assignment, their first location. But they left their habitation, which was heaven. They left that heaven. They left heaven. And then it says that God reserved them unto everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So they, after leaving heaven and committing some sin, they're, going, they're, they're, they're now being punished. They're, going to, they're reserved to be punished. But now it tells us a little bit about that sin in verse number 7. Jude 7 goes like this. 
It describes this sin of these angels. It compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. That is a description of both Sodom and Gomorrah and the fallen angels. Their sin involved fornication and going after strange flesh. Now, by context, we understand that the primary strange flesh that the Sodomites were seeking was the sin of homosexuality. In the case of the angels, it was a little bit different. The strange flesh that they went after was out-of-kind breeding, out-of-kind mating, out-of-kind mixing. Now, this is described in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 1. Now, some of you are familiar with this passage. Let's look at it briefly, though. Genesis 6, beginning at verse 1, we'll read the first four verses which describe the sin of these angels. Bear in mind that this is just immediately prior to God's decision to destroy the earth in a watery flood. Verse 1, it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now there are a couple of different ways that scholars interpret this. Bible students, some of them say, well, some are going to say, okay, these were, mm, the the sons of God in verse 2 were wholesome and moral good men, righteous men, and the daughters of men were wicked women. And when it describes how God was displeased in verses 3 and 4, it's because the good men married bad women. Now, they have their reasons for arguing in that way, but I don't think it's a valid argument. There are a host of examples in which Scripture describes good men marrying bad women, and in a few cases, they turn their wives around. The prophet Hosea married a bad woman, (laughs) and God was not too displeased with that. In fact, God asked him to do so. That typically is not going to raise God's ire in the sense that he says, I think I better consider destroying the entire world. But what might raise his ire is an alternative explanation in which the sons of God is a phrase, a euphemism, an idiomatic expression that means angels. You say, well, why would you assume that? Well, because from context in other Old Testament passages, namely the book of Job is is one of the best places to show this, the words, the phrase, sons of God, does indeed mean angels. And the following description fits well with this particular approach in this thesis. If we assume that this could be, perhaps, angels marrying ladies, that is, angel kind, leaving heaven, leaving their first estate, going after the strange flesh of human females, that might make God angry. Indeed, I believe that's the case. For if we keep reading in verse 3, it says, My spirit shall not also strive with man, for that he is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. That's indicating the timing of the flood. 
in my view. Now notice verse 4. This is really the key verse. We have to read verse 4 very closely because it's embedded with a lot of useful information. It says, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now the word giants in Hebrew is nephilim. People have done many word studies to try to track down what that really means. Some say the King James translators made a blunder when they chose the word giants in English. I think they did not. I think they did not make a mistake. And that's a perfectly good word, as we're going to see as we pursue this a little further. So there were giants. Where did they come from? Well, let's keep reading in verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that... I'm going to come back to that phrase. Let's just skip over that little, those, those four little words, also after that. Let me read it this way. There were giants in the earth in those days, when the sons of God came in into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Verse 4 is describing how this illicit union of angel kind and humankind produced offspring that were giants that became famous, but not famous for their good deeds, famous for their iniquity and their evil. Now, this is the first, in my view, this is the first large-scale mixing of angels with people prior to the flood. All right, so this is a pretty large-scale event. I don't know how many angels. I have no idea how many. There are theories about that, that there might have been hundreds of these. We don't know, maybe, maybe less, but it was not one or two angels. It was many, it was multiple. I think that this is biblically defensible, what I'm describing for you here. <clears throat> All right. So, produce this problem. Now, if we continue to read, we see that the problem became magnified the idea of one kind of, of God's creation interbreeding with another kind of God's creation spread. If we keep reading Genesis chapter 6, we discover that Noah was pure in his generations, but it gives you the sense that there was a lot of other problems that were likened to what we just read. That race mixing was all over the place in the days prior to the flood. Plus other evil, of course. As we've already discussed today, race mixing and idolatry often go together. So, of course, there is idolatry and other related sins and, and, and iniquities. Now, let's go a little further, though, on this idea. Let's continue. Let's shift gears slightly and jump forward many hundreds of years. We're going to jump forward many hundreds of years to the time when the children of Israel had left the land of Egypt where they were slaves. They had wandered in the wilderness. God was getting ready to guide them into the land of Canaan. And just when they're ready to go into the land of Canaan, and they're all excited about going into the land of Canaan, they're going to have their own homeland, and they were going to whip up on the people living in the land of Canaan. They run into something that Apparently they didn't expect, or maybe they did, but it was, seemed to be a little more intimidating than what they thought. And of course that was described in Numbers 30, 13. In Numbers 13 it describes that they ran into giants. 
giants in the land of Canaan. And it tells us, and you know this story, there were 12 spies sent. Ten of them came back and said, oh my goodness, there's giants in that land and, and, and we just can't possibly, we can't possibly go into that land of Canaan and, and fight against these giants. Let me read for you Numbers chapter 13. As we just track down a little bit more, this story and this thought of giants. Now, I'm not really interested in, in, in what the world says about giants in archaeology or what you find on the internet, because there's so much photoshopping and goofing around out there, you have no idea what you're finding on the internet is true or false or could be right or could be wrong. I'm really interested in what the Bible has to say. And so that's really what we're trying to do, is discover what does the Bible have to say about this idea, this notion of giants. Well, Numbers 13 tells us this story, and then it describes this evil report. I'm going to read for you verse 32. It says, They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Great means big, very large. And we, there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak. All right, Anak, that might be a name worth remembering. Which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. So we get this sense that these were some very, very large men. Very, very big people that they ran into. Now, where do these big people come from? Well, the best clue that we have is a pretty small one. It's kind of small, I'll admit that. But I think it's useful, and it's enough to give us a sense of what may be happening. If you return to Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 4, remember now that Genesis was written many, many hundreds of years, written, they believe, by Moses, hundreds of years after the events of Genesis 6. So, the writer of Genesis gives a clue that the mixing of the angel kind with humankind happened more than once. It says, Genesis 6, 4, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. That is to say, it happened a second time. God destroyed the giants in the global flood of Noah. But some angels did it again. Some wicked angels did this again. Now why would they do that? Why would such a thing occur? And the reason is because Satan and the forces of evil understood the importance of the land of Canaan. They understood that Abraham had been given a promise that his children would occupy the land of Canaan. And Satan and the forces of evil wanted to prevent that from happening. And so there was a race to get to and control the land of Canaan. And that race to the land of Canaan, like other conflicts, as one Civil War general said, I believe it was Nathan Bedford Forrest, the key to victory is getting their firstest with the mostest. 
And that's exactly what the strategy was here. The forces of evil were going to get to the land of Canaan firstest with the mostest so they could occupy it and deny it to the Israelites when the Israelites came knocking at the door in the land of Canaan in the days of Moses and Joshua. There were going to be giants there that would prevent the Israelites from occupying the land and all of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would fall flat and be null and void and the Israelites would be whipped and wander around off in some distant desert to fizzle, fade away from history, and all of God's promises to Abraham would come to nothing. Satan would defeat the forces of good and righteousness. That's why the giants were in the land. And there was a race to get there first. And the giants did indeed, Satan did get his forces there earlier. Now, if we go into a study of the giants, which we do not have time for in some great detail, but we'll give you a little detail here. There were four groups of giants in the land of Canaan. There was the sons of Anak, called the Anakim. There were the Rephaim. They were the Amorites. And then there is this colorful group, the Emim Zamzumans. Hmm, that, that sounds great. The Emim Zamzumans. <laughs> Now, in Deuteronomy 3.11, we have another really fascinating clue. If you enjoy this kind of a study, you ought to really reflect on this. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse number 11, describes one particular giant. The Israelites defeated this gentleman. Deuteronomy 3.11, you ought to read, look at this. Mark, you, this is worth noting. One of the giants that was in the land who had descended from this family of giants was a guy named Og. Sounds a little bit like a caveman, Og. But it tells us in Deuteronomy 3.11, For only Og, the king of Bashan, remained of the remnants of the giants. That is, the Israelites had whittled them all down, pretty much. And then it says, Behold, his bedstead is telling us about the man's bed. It was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. His bed was nine cubits long and four cubits wide. Now, for interest's sake, that turns out to be about 13 and a half feet. 13 and a half to 14 feet long was his bed. A 14-foot-long bed. Now, why would the children of Israel mention that? Why did the author just throw in that particular detail? Why did he do that? He did that because they wanted to help the children of Israel remember who this guy Og was that they had eliminated. This guy Og was a very special enemy. He was a true giant. He was enormous. And his bed was the physical evidence of his enormous size that in the day of this writing, you could go visit. You could ride your donkey over to that city where his bed was, and you could look at it as if you were viewing a museum, he could say, wow, I know my grandfather, when he told us that when they entered the land of Canaan that they had to kill a bunch of giants, I thought he was just exaggerating. You know how grandfathers are. When I was your age, son, when I was only 21, you know, you should have seen the guys we had to fight against. Well, it turns out that Grandpa might not have been exaggerating after all. 
because you can look at the bed of the king of these people, and his bed was almost 14 feet long. All right, that's why it's mentioned. And that's why Og, ordinarily a rather obscure person, is actually mentioned in Scripture 22 times. He's mentioned over and over again because it was a notable memory in the historic memory banks of the nation of Israel that they had defeated and won this great battle. They had defeated this great enemy, Og. And so Og appears in the Psalms and all sorts of places. Og of Bashan. Now, the other giant that's worthy of mentioning, and, and worth exploring, just to emphasize this, I, and, and I know this is something that some of you are a little bit familiar with, but we're going to need to take just a few moments, is, of course, Goliath. Now, I want to take just a couple of minutes and recreate a sense of Goliath, if we can. So I need a little help here. I'm going to need Eric to come up here. And uh, Seth, you can help me, please. Eric and my, my two sons, Eric and Seth, come up here. All right, so Eric, we're gonna, you're a pretty good-sized guy. You're not big as Goliath by any long shot, but you're one of the biggest guys that we've got, so we'll work with you. So, Seth, you go over there behind there, and we're going to read about something, and then we're going to have a look here at a little bit about Goliath versus a regular man. That's what we're going to look at. Goliath versus an ordinary large man. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's where we need to go next. Now, all of us know pretty well the story of David and Goliath. We want to read very carefully the description of Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to read verses 4 through 7. Are you ready? Follow along. Pay attention here closely. There went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Now, six cubits in a span takes you to about nine foot nine. Now, the skeptics of all of this sort of thing say, oh, Goliath wasn't any, he wasn't a ten foot tall person. Goliath was probably about like a, oh, you know, maybe seven feet, kind of like a pro basketball player, maybe seven feet tall, seven one, seven two, you know, something, something like that. One of these very tall people. Uh, that was what Goliath was really like. He surely was, surely, surely he wasn't some sort of a ten footer. That's crazy to think he would, might bump his head in the basketball goal. But let's keep reading. It says he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass on his legs, a target of brass between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. It's describing his primary weapon now. A big, heavy spear. His, the staff of the spear was like a weaver's beam, which is thick, be like a 4 by 4 post. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. All right, let's just pause there. So Seth, I want you to pick up. We need, we need to, to look at his armor there. It says, here's the real clue that's helpful. If you haven't ever studied this, it's kind of, kind of interesting. It says the weight of his coat of armor, his coat of mail. So just his armor, it says it was... 5,000 shekels. We need 5,000 shekels of weight. So, Seth, bring out those two back here. Bring out the two 45s. Okay, so we need, we need 5,000 shekels. All right, now that's just hand it to your hand it here. Okay. 
Bring out another one quickly, Seth. Move quick. All right, now get ready. You've got some more coming. All right. 5,000 shekels turns out to be about 125 pounds. Hand that to him. Okay, go get, uh, that's, that's 90 pounds. Get a green one. One green one. Okay, now that's the weight of, a, of the, the coat of mail. That's just, all right, that's, that's just the coat of mail. All right, so, all right, well, you can rest for a minute. You guys can hold that together. But that wasn't all he had. In addition to the coat of mail, he had a helmet. He had greaves, which protect your legs down here. Okay, now this is, so, and then he had, oh, let's see, what was it? Uh, he had a target of brass, so he had some sort of round thing that was on his chest. It was like a big circular thingy. And then, of course, he had, uh, there was one other item. What was that? Oh, yeah, the, the, was it the helmet? He had the, oh, I'm, I'm missing something. Where was it? He had the helmet, the coat of mail, the coat of brass, the greaves, and the target. So we've got some more. So we've got... His helmet was probably about 10 pounds. All right. All right, there's the helmet. And the greaves, oh, well, we'll say the greaves were each about 7 or 8 pounds on each leg. So that's 15 more pounds. Okay. And then we had, let's see, the target of brass, right? I don't know. Let's, we'll just say, I don't know. Here, let's go with this. We'll say it's about 30, 15 pounds. The target of brass, you know, it's like this. So in case it got through the male shirt, you know, he had that. All right. Now, give all that to Goliath. All right. Now, this is what Goliath was wearing when he went to battle. Now, do you think you could put all that on and fight? You got to fight, right? You're not just holding it up. You got to move around and fight. All right. I guess we'll let Goliath go. You can pile all that back there, fellas. Whew. Save us here. Okay. For, com for those who would like to make a comparison, you think, well, you know, the knights back in medieval times, they wore a lot of armor, didn't they? Well, it turns out an average full suit of plate mail was between about 35 and 50 pounds. And that was enough. It protected you pretty well, but it, it, there were problems with that. So sometimes they would fall off their horse, and in the course of fighting, you know, they didn't have the, with people coming at you, they couldn't get back on again. So all kinds of uh, issues are, are relevant here to, to this concept of, of the size of these men. Now, the whole point of this is that I'm trying to illustrate in looking at Og and Goliath. And here's what we need to come back to in our outline. These were not ordinary big men. These were not men who were 700, 7 feet tall and 300 pounds. And when they called them giants, they really mean giants. They didn't mean uh, the way I might have felt when I was in high school and I had to go play basketball against somebody five inches taller than me and I feel like I'm playing against a giant. He really wasn't a giant. Not in this sense. So the physical dimensions of these giants now 
They are really, really big. Really, really big. These are accurate representations. They preclude them being ordinary large men. They also preclude them being men who have a malfunctioning pituitary gland. Not that either. Because those men that live today who suffer from a malfunctioning pituitary gland are not capable of being warriors because they are clumsy, they are unhealthy, they are unfit, they have organ problems, and they often die young. The point I'm trying to make is, only the fallen angel thesis can explain the origins of these giants in a sensible way. Where else could they have come from? Ordinary men, these were not ordinary big men. These were not ordinary large men. These were giants. Now I'm going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. Did Jesus ever state that fallen angels could not intermarry on earth? Now some people will say, hey, if you look in Matthew 22, Jesus says that uh, the angels, I better, guess I better read that, Matthew 22, verses 29 and 30, tells us something. A question was asked of Jesus, goes like this. What's the resurrection going to be like for us, for humans, for us people? What's the resurrection going to be like? And Jesus says, you guys really don't know the Bible very well. And then he goes on to say, in the resurrection, men and ladies aren't going to marry, or nor are they given in marriage, but they're like the angels of God in heaven. Well, we understand the angels in heaven don't marry. But these angels that we're describing left their first estate. And this wasn't in heaven. This was on earth. And God became very angry. So Jesus doesn't, pre, doesn't say that it's impossible for angel kind and humankind to have ever interbred. So this is, an, this is a, a, an interesting study that we could spend more time on. But the point for our purposes here today is that these fallen angels set a very wicked example that I believe occurred twice in the Old Testament, at least twice, that is, and set a very wicked example that others followed. Now, there's a couple other examples that are notorious when we consider this type of failure. The failure to segregate the way God wants His people to do so. Let's go back up in time to something prior to the days of Moses. Let's go to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we go to Genesis chapter 26, we find a little tidbit about Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 36, in verse 30, let's see here, I think, wait a minute here. Excuse me, Genesis 26, sorry. Genesis 26 and verse 34, we discover that Esau, when he was 40 years old, took to wife a lady named Judith and a lady named Bashamath. They were Hittites. And it turns out this was a great grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. They were very upset about this. Something must have been wrong with these women. Well, it wasn't that they were perhaps non-believers. The problem, the central problem was that they did not, they were not of the race and ethnicity of Jacob 
and Isaac and Esau and of their family. And it tells us in verse 20, chapter 27 at the end, Rebekah makes a very loaded and important comment. When Rebekah, the mother of Esau, thinks about what Esau had done to her in marrying uh, uh, in this other race of people, she's now focusing all of her attention on her one remaining son. And she has something to say about Jacob. And she says at the end of chapter 27, verse 46, Rebekah says to her husband Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. That's the Hittites. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as those which are the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? It would have been just as good if I'd never been born. If both of my sons marry the daughters of Heth, you'll notice she doesn't get all worked up. She's not worked up about their religious faith. She's worked up about who they are. Who they are. That can't be fixed. That can't be converted. So prior to Mosaic law, we see that Esau married outside his race. He offended his parents. If we had time to explore the life of Esau further, we would discover that it basically went downhill from there. Nothing good ever came out of Esau pretty much ever again. That ended his usefulness to the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, there's a third example. A very familiar one, I hope, to this congregation. I will not read these verses for lack of time. But in Ezra and Nehemiah, we discover that after the children of Israel returned from the land of Babylon, some of the Israelites married foreign women. In Ezra and Nehemiah, it describes that they married into the very people that were forbidden to them back in Deuteronomy chapter number 7. And this turned out to be of an enormous distress to Ezra, so much that it created a crisis, and they had to come up with a plan to separate these men from their wives and children, to somehow work to cleanse the people of Israel of this race mixing. Now, what I'd like to spend a little time on, what we've got left, is an exploration of Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth is often given, repeatedly given, as an example of a non-Israelite who married into Israel and God was in favor of it. You'll hear this over and over and over again. Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess married into the Israelite race and people. And Ruth is an example of God's favor being upon this. God had no trouble with a Moabitess, a racial Moabitess, an ethnic Moabitess, marrying into the Israelites. And we know that God had no objection to it because it was Ruth's line that produced King David. Indeed, David was Ruth's great-grandson. David was Ruth's great-grandson. David's great-grandmother was Ruth. So the argument goes, God obviously is in favor of this. Well, I would agree God has no objection to Ruth marrying in to the family tree that's described here 
when Ruth married Boaz and produced the child Obed, who then produced the child Jesse, from whom came King David. But the problem is, in the assumption that Ruth was a racial ethnic Moabitess. So I'd like to take a few minutes and explore this with you, okay? First of all, as we run through this, I'd like to posit the position that Ruth the Moabitess was a geographic description, not a racial ethnic description. She was a Moabitess in terms of geography, not a Moabitess in terms of her ethnicity, her racial or ethnic background. Now, describing people by their geographic background did occur quite a bit in the Bible. And I've listed some examples. Now, the reason they do that is because people didn't have surnames. Jones and Smith and Benson and so forth. And so to keep people straight, one person from another, often it was so-and-so, and then where you're from, your geographic place of origin. And I've given you a whole list in the Bible to show you that this happened all the time. Abdon was a Pyrathonite. He was a judge. He came from the city of Parathon. Ahithophel the Gilonite, a counselor of David, was from the town of Gilon. Barzillai the Gileadite, a friend of David, came from the land of Gilead. Gilead was originally a man, but in time a whole region became known as Gilead. A whole, and there are thousands and thousands of people that lived in Gilead. Elhanan, the man who killed Goliath's brother, was a Bethlehemite. It describes him as such. Hezri, the Carmelite, a mighty man of David, came from Carmel. A geographic place, a spot, a hill, a mountain. And if we jump to the New Test, we have Mary Magdalene. Magdalene's not her last name. Not her last name. Magdalene is where she came from. She came from Magdala, a little village by the Sea of Galilee. Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, in the sense that Jesus was a Nazarene, Mary was a Magdalene. So we have the precedent in Scripture that's, that's often utilized to make a geographic description attached to a name. And I believe that was the case with Ruth the Moabitess. Now I hope you know the story of Ruth, and I hope you remember most of the details. We'll try to recap it as quickly as we can with the time we've got left. Now, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, starts with the story of a famine. And it turns out that Ruth's first husband, Ruth's first husband, I believe, was probably a man who emigrated to the land of Moab as from, from the, 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 the famine. And so it describes this in chapter 1 and verse 1, this famine feature. But it's very common, actually, ladies and gentlemen, in the history of the Bible, that Israelites would often migrate to a nearby country in the time of a famine. Abraham left the land of Canaan in a famine. He went to Egypt. Jacob left the land of Canaan. He also went to Egypt. Elijah left the land of Canaan during a famine. Elijah went to Zidon, which was a land up by the, uh, the area of the Phoenicians and the Philistines. So it's really common for people to emigrate during famines. And that could be the case with Ruth's birth family. Secondly, in Deuteronomy 13, excuse me, Deuteronomy 3.12, I won't read it, but you can look at it. One of these little details in history and scripture. 
It turns out the Israelite tribes of Reuben and Gad had previously settled the country of Moab along the Arnon River. Now, you and I don't pay much attention to the Arnon River. Well, you know, we've heard of the Jordan River. The Arnon River? What's what's that? Well, it's just a small river in that part of the world. But it's described in Deuteronomy 3.12 how the tribes of Reuben and Gad settled along the Arnon River, which was the land that the Moabites also liked and wanted. And you know enough about Old Testament history to know that these little territories were fought over, right? Right? You guys know that. Just like the Germans and the French, right, fought over Alsace and Lorraine, right? We know that. Back and forth and back and forth, right? And the Germans and the Poles fought over the city of Danzig and Prussia and, you know, all that, East, all that stuff. You know our European history? Well, it was the same way in the Bible days. The Moabites and the Israelites and so forth, they were squabbling back and forth over chunks of territory, the same piece of real estate. That is the case in the story of Ruth to understand this. But this isn't the strongest evidence to show that Ruth was a racial Israelite, not a racial Moabitess. Let's go a little further. In Ruth chapter number 4, near the end of the story, we have this business about another man being interested in marrying Ruth besides Boaz. So Boaz wants to marry her. But Boaz can't right away because there's an Old Testament law. It's connected to the concept of a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz had to give that fellow first option to marry Ruth. Does that make sense? Have you heard of this business? It's called the, uh, <clears throat> the law of the Liberit. Okay. Anyway. So this other gentleman had a chance. He was a closer relative than Boaz was. So this close relative of Ruth and, and Ruth's, that's closer rather, excuse me, closer relative uh, to Ruth's hus- first husband's family, that is Naomi, this other fellow had a better claim. Now that's what I'm driving at. This other fellow had a better claim to Ruth. Now, you might recall this particularly odd little story, whereas the other fellow had to relinquish his claim. This was part of the marriage laws of the Old Testament. We better read this, okay? Let's take a moment and read it. Ruth chapter number 4. Let's read a couple of verses. I know we're short on time, but we've got to read this so you understand it. Let's start in verse number Five. I'm in Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. We're kind of in an important area, so I know the time's growing short, but try and stay with me and pay attention, because this is important to understanding who Ruth really was. Ruth 4, verse 5. Boaz says, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, I can't redeem it. So the guy who was closer related than Boaz said, Look, I, I can't, oh, I, I'm interested in the land, but I can't marry Ruth because I've got my own family, I've got my own wife, I've got another wife here, and she, you know, for whatever reason, I can't, I can't go there. And then it describes what happens next, something a little odd to a modern ear. 
It says, now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. This was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Took off his shoe, okay? And Boaz said to the elders and unto the people, You are witnesses this day that I bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, the Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, I have purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren from the gate of this place. You are witnesses this day. And the, all the people that are in the gate and the elders say, We are witnesses. So here's the point. Boaz and the elders of Bethlehem followed the marriage law of kinsman redemption, including this unusual shoe statute. Now, the shoe statute is found in Deuteronomy 25, verse 9, if you'd like, if you'd care to look there. But this is a real law, kind of an obscure one, out of Bible law. Now, notice they were attentive to this particular marriage provision, right? Did you guys see that? They were, they were following God's law regarding this business of kinsman redemption and the business of the shoe. Now, does it make any sense that they would pay attention to that particular aspect of marriage law and ignore another aspect of marriage law? Now, the other aspect of marriage law has something to say about Moabites. Now, you'd better look at this. It turns out in Deuteronomy 23.3, we have a pretty strong statement regarding Moabites. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 says, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Now, however you interpret that, whether the ten generations is, a, is an expression or meant to mean per perpetuity, ten generations is a long time. Let's just take it on face value and say, well, it means ten generations. Well, guess what? We've got a little problem here. Now, first, the first problem is this. If they were attentive to the statute about the shoe, don't you think they would pay attention to the statute that says... You can't marry an ethnic Moabite? Do you think they were the elders of the city of Bethlehem would say, well, let's pay close attention to this statute about the shoe, this law about the shoe, but we'll ignore this law over here that says you can't marry a Moabite. Do you think they would do that? I think it's illogical, unreasonable to assume they're going to be very attentive to this obscure statute, this what seems to be kind of a smallish law, and, and forget all about this great, big, important one that's so powerful and so intense. But we can take that a step further. Let's look at it from God's point of view. Now, it, when Deuteronomy 23.3 states that no Moabite can enter the congregation of Israel, even to the tenth generation, if Ruth was an ethnic Moabitess, David would have been a Moabite of the fourth generation. Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. That means when God picked David to be the king of Israel, 
he also would have been ignoring the statute against Moabites. Not only would it mean that the elders would have had to overlook this very important rule about marriage, it means that God decided to overlook this important rule about marriage. God would be violating His own law when He showed David any favor. Furthermore, God would have had to be violating yet another law. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15, gives us criteria of the kings of Israel. One of the criteria of the kings of Israel, taken from Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, says, You may not set a stranger over thee which is not thy brother. You can't pick a king for yourselves that isn't an Israelite. That would have been a problem. If Ruth was a Moabitess, then God is overlooking Deuteronomy 17.15 in selecting David to be a king over Israel when David was of a mixed-race origin. And God was overlooking Deuteronomy 23.3 when God said, well, no Moabites in the congregation of Israel, at least till the tenth generation, and yet David would have been only the fourth generation. So, we've got to do a... There's a lot of problems with the thesis that Ruth was an ethnic Moabitess. There's a lot of good reasons to say that Ruth, in the providence of God, had to be of an Israelitish background. And there's a lot of good reasons to think that, that might have been the case, and was the case. So... Ruth is not an example of a non-Israelite who marries into, God, into the Israelites, and God is very happy and pleased with this. All right, so we're pretty much wrapping up now. I'd just like to kind of close with a quick thought or two, though. It's important for us to maintain a little bit of historical perspective when we deal with these topics and the need for racial and ethnic segregation. Until our own lifetimes... Segregation was a vital rule for social order. It wasn't until the 1960s in this country, and really the 1960s in the rest of the Western world, that all this began to break down. And that, of course, is about the same time that everything else has begun to break down. That's when we had our cultural revolution. That's when we began to abandon God. That's when we, our public schools began to change. Our public policies began to change. All of these things that are connected, they're, they're all connected one with another. And that's why we can say that this business of racial and ethnic mixing is, is really connected to idolatry as well. They go together hand in hand. And when we abandon God, we are abandoning God's laws and precepts, and we're abandoning this important one in which ethnic segregation means so much to us and to our future. We're going to need to be ready for the challenges of life, and occasionally in your lifetime, you'll be challenged in this. So I pray and trust that you will hold firm in your life to the very best of your ability, your very best of your ability, the case for segregation for Israel. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your patience this morning. May God bless all of you.